And a good Tuesday to all of you. Thanks for joining me as always. It is very much appreciated. Let's start with the QB1 situation in Foxborough. Bill Belichick met with the media this morning. And according to Phil Perry on X, he asked Belichick if his decision at quarterback would be based on how players performed in practice this week. Belichick said, quote, it will be based on what I think is best for the team, unquote. Ah, the old Belichick best for the team line. Another Perry post, Belichick on who was playing quarterback this weekend, quote, I've told all the players the same thing, be ready to go, unquote. Now, two options here. Either A, Bill Belichick is being Bill Belichick, right? Bill being Bill, the old Manny being Manny, way back when with the Red Sox. This is Belichick being Belichick, classic Bill, which really is just Bill at times being super petty. Or Bill Belichick and the Patriots, are still undecided as to who is going to start this game against the Giants on Sunday. If it is the latter and not the former, if we're talking about Belichick being undecided, the first takeaway is that Mac has not lost the room. If Mac Jones lost the room, or 80% of the room, which was reported last week, and again, I believe Andrew Callahan was told that by somebody within the facility, not sure if that somebody was actually being accurate when they said 80 to 20 or whatever they said to Andrew. But Bill Belichick does not believe Mac Jones has lost the room. Because if Mac Jones lost the room, I said it last week, he would not be playing in this game. There would be no ifs, ands, or buts about this. If you lose 80% of the locker room, you're done so. So either Mac has not lost the room or this is an even scarier thought. Belichick is ignorant to the fact that Mac has lost the room. I find that hard to believe because how in the world could Belichick be ignorant to that fact when you know for a fact he understands that this stuff is being written? If you think Belichick doesn't pay attention to the media, you've been hoodwinked. He absolutely pays attention to the media. He understands what is being said, what is being written at all times, 24-7, 365 about his football team. And so even if Belichick was ignorant to the idea of Mac losing the locker room before last week, last week would have been the epiphany because you have, you would have read that. And even if you didn't believe it, I would have to imagine that Belichick reading that Mac had lost 80% of the room would then do what? He would go to the room. And if he didn't go to the room and talk to the players in the room, I would have to imagine he would pull aside the captains of this team. He would pull aside the veteran leaders of this team and say, hey, listen, has Mac really lost the room? He would pull aside his coaching staff. I'm sure he would have in-depth conversations with Bill O'Brien when he saw something like this and asked Bill, hey, has he lost the room, Bill? Has Mac just lost the room? So this tells me the fact that they have not decided on a quarterback, if that's what's happened here, Mac has not lost the room. I'm not telling you that everybody unequivocally is behind Mac. I'm just telling you this isn't a vast wasteland when it comes to the Mac Jones relationship with his teammates. That's the first takeaway. Second takeaway, turnovers don't matter apparently because when you watch that game in Germany, you see that final pick by Mac Jones, you would have to believe that Mac Jones would not be playing the next game. Bye week, no bye week. Belichick pulled him in the final few minutes of that game for Bailey Zappi. And we talked about that yesterday, that there's a disconnect here. If that interception is bad enough to pull Mac at the end of the game to throw Bailey Zappi in for a two-minute drill with the game on the line, on the road, right? 
if that interception is bad enough to do that, then how in the world do you not bench Mac this coming weekend? Now, maybe inevitably that will be the decision, but how is that decision not being made right now? Belichick and this coaching staff has had more than a full week to sit on this. They could pour through all of the film. They can go through all of their evaluations. They could look at that Colts game. How in the world do you think it's necessary to pull the quarterback in Germany, but then think it's okay to start him against New York? I, I You know, you can look at the Dallas game and say, all right, one bad performance. You can look at the Saints game and say, back-to-back, terrible performances. We were told back then that Bailey Zappi and Will Greer hadn't done much of anything to take the job away from Mac. In back-to-back games, as brutal as it was, you could say to yourself, well, it's still before the middle of the season. This team still has something to play for. There's still some reasoning to continue this Mac experiment. Right now, there's no reason to play Mac Jones against the Giants. Unless, again, you think, that it gives you the best chance to win, and that's pretty difficult when you didn't think Mac Jones gave you the best chance to win that game against the Colts. So either Belichick made a terrible, rash, stupid decision against the Colts by benching Mac at the end of the game, or he has no earthly idea what the hell to do at the quarterback position. Both of those are bad, (laughs) whether it's one or the other. Could be both. It's not like one is better than the other. So I'm just trying to make sense of this, and I'm getting to the point where it is an exercise of futility to try to make sense of the senseless. Because what's been happening has been totally senseless. And I think all of us at this point agree with that. And if you don't, I can't help you. So if they're still undecided at quarterback on Tuesday after a bye week, And they've got Thanksgiving coming up on Thursday, so they're not going to practice on Thursday. If they're still undecided, Mac hasn't lost a room or Belichick is ignorant to the fact that he lost a room. Turnovers don't matter. There are no consequences following the game that you screwed up in the next week or two weeks later. Also, I think we could say that Zappi would have to be that freaking bad. If Zappi is that bad, why is he even on the roster? What is the point of having Bailey Zappi on the roster if you're not going to start him this weekend against the Giants? Outside of an injury, there's really no other reason to have a QB2 on this team, apparently. So Zappi, he has to be that bad, or maybe there's something that goes beyond the field. And I wanted to read this because it jumped out at me yesterday when I was looking through some notes. This might not just be a Bailey Zappi is bad on the field thing. Mike Giardi uh, wrote about Bailey Zappi at Boston Sports Journal yesterday. Quote, Zappi won a couple of starts last year and a fair amount of you got the fever. But the second year quarterback didn't impress O'Brien in the spring, summer, and even now in the fall, completing 40% of his passes and mop-up duty. Now here's the point that really stood out to me. Zappi's attitude has annoyed some in the building as well. And if we've learned anything over the years, those folks can hold a grudge. So Bailey Zappi's attitude has annoyed some in the building. 
they can hold a grudge. I don't know who Giardi is talking about, but it certainly seems like he would be hinting at Belichick, who we know holds grudges. We know for a fact that Belichick is an all-time grudge holder. So this might go beyond the football field with Bailey Zappi, which begs the question, what are you doing during your evaluation process when it's draft time? Mac Jones has questions about his leadership. Mac Jones has had questions about his maturity. Mac Jones has had questions about whether or not, you know, he he's truly linked with this team off the field and how his relationships are with the guys and the coaching staff. And now you're telling me there could be issues with the backup quarterback away from the field and that his attitude might be an issue. So what kind of evaluation process are you going through when drafting a quarterback? Because it seems like a freaking all out mess. You got QB one who's broken with maturity and leadership questions. You've got QB2 who has stunk with maybe maturity and leadership questions. I'm not really sure why these people are annoyed with Bailey Zappi's attitude. I don't know if he's being prickly. I don't know if it's something else. But you now have quarterback one and quarterback two with not only all the questions on the field, but also questions off the field. Great. Great. Look at this quarterback room. I just want people to truly appreciate what I'm going to say. Let's all take a breath and soak this in. We are at the point, week 12 of the season, that some are discussing the idea of throwing Malik Cunningham out there to play at quarterback. Now, I would find that very unfair to the young man. He has been practicing at wide receiver to treat him as the break glass in case of an emergency and throw him out there with this offense, with all of these issues right now, you're just setting him up to embarrass himself, frankly. Maybe he would pull the rabbit out of the hat, but he is not prepared for that in any way. But we are talking about somebody that was an undrafted free agent just seven months ago, who was, by the way, cut from this team a month ago, who is now practicing as a wide receiver, we are looking towards that guy to possibly be an answer for the rest of the season at quarterback or just looking at it as what do we've got to lose? Think about how badly the quarterback position has to be managed to get to this point. And we have zero injuries. Max not injured. Zappy's not injured. Greer's not injured. It is just the mishandling of the quarterback position by Bill Belichick. To the point now, week 12, we're looking at an undrafted free agent who was cut a month ago, practicing as a wide receiver the entire year as a, hey, maybe we should try this option. If that doesn't speak volumes about Belichick and how this roster management has gone completely off the rails at the most critical position in the league, I don't know what would. Unreal. Now, if this is Bill being Bill, if this is gamesmanship, context matters. Like what you're doing by handling it this way is you're setting up more headaches for a 2-8 and eight team. The guys just got off of the bye week. They're looking forward to their Thanksgiving. They want some peace and harmony in their lives. And what you're doing is you're throwing this Molotov, Molotov cocktail in the middle of the locker room 
and saying, eh, we'll figure it out. Now, if Belichick is telling the team behind closed doors that Zappi's starting, then what the hell is this point in the first place? You're forcing these guys that are not the quarterbacks and the quarterbacks to be asked these questions about who's going to be QB1. You're unnecessarily, in my estimation, creating drama for your football team during a season that you need a lot less drama. So the Belichick being Belichick stuff, this is different. You can be Belichick being Belichick if you're eight and two. Because then there's a method to the madness. But when you have chaos surrounding you and you have this team at two and eight and things are playing out the way they're playing out, then what this is is just furthering the chaos. It's throwing gasoline on the fire, at least in my opinion. I mean, after after what we saw in Germany, to not come out with a statement, to let the team know, to let everybody know, to let the media know, we're going to sit Mac Jones this week, we're playing Bailey Zappi. Not doing that is you as the head coach, you as the shot caller of this organization making zero statement about what happened in Germany. You're just letting this thing float. Just letting it float. And if you do know that it's going to be Bailey Zappi, what you're doing is, even if you're just giving some snaps to Mac Jones while the media watches, you're not preparing Zappi the right way. If you do know that Zappi is going to be the guy against the Giants, Zappi should get all of the snaps. Every single solitary snap at practice this week should go to Bailey Zappi. No need for the circus. No need for the petty games with the media. No need for the gamesmanship. Give the guy all the snaps and then off the field, allow Zappi to answer the questions and allow Mac Jones to answer the questions. See how those two young quarterbacks handle the questioning from the media about their spot on the team. I mean, what is really the difference at this point? But people saying, well, why would he tip his hand? Why would he tip his hand to the Giants? What's the freaking point? Neither quarterback gives you the feels at this moment in time. Max broken. Zappy has sucked. So what's the difference? You have much more to gain from naming a starter and giving that guy the keys this week than trying to play a game of chess when you're two and eight. Speaking of Belichick, is Robert Kraft going to bring back most of this program in 2024? We'll talk about that. We've got some details on that in a minute. But don't forget to follow us on Spotify, rate and review Apple Pods and Spotify as well. And like, comment, subscribe on the YouTube channel. Every thumbs up means an awful lot to us as we try to build this alternative. Make sure you give us that thumbs up. Takes a second of your time. Just slide down to the bottom of the screen and click. It's that easy. Comment. What do you think Belichick's doing with this quarterback decision this week? And subscribe. Love all of the subscriptions that I see compiling in day after day, week after week. All right. Well, Robert Kraft run most of this program back. I know it's a sickly feeling that you get when you think about the idea of Kraft bringing this band back. The expectation by most and the expectation by me, unless Belichick creates some kind of unbelievable atmosphere that results in a ridiculous turnaround and this team runs off, you know, six out of its last seven games. I think and I think most of us at this point would say Belichick is gone. 
Belichick will be gone at the end of the year, whether Kraft fires him straight up or Kraft approaches him and says, we're going to take the GM title away from you, which angers Belichick, which, you know, in turn has Belichick resign or whatever the case may be, start looking for other teams for deals. I think we're all at the point, aside from this miraculous turnaround, Belichick's gone. Kraft, we know he loves stability. And frankly, you should love stability as an owner. You should love stability as a manager. You should love stability in your life, no matter who you are. But we've got some huge hirings. If Belichick is gone, if slash when Belichick goes, we have some huge hirings. GM, president of football operations, the head coach. And inevitably, the question is, will the Crafts go outside of Foxborough to fill one of or both of those posts? And Phil Perry was on Zoe and Bertrand yesterday, 98.5 The Sports Hub, and Phil said that he believes that both Gerard Mayo and Bill O'Brien will be back with the Patriots next season, and he believes that it's likely Mayo will be the head coach. So Gerard Mayo head coach, Bill O'Brien offensive coordinator. That's what Phil Perry believes right now. Then Perry, in his weekly mailbag for NBC Sports Boston, was asked about the GM and president of football operations role. Perry wrote this. It wouldn't come as a massive surprise if the Patriots opted to bring in a GM from the outside. A fresh perspective, someone with a proven track record from a successful organization might be welcome. There's a but. But. Perhaps ownership, understanding the behind-the-scenes dynamics better than anyone, would be comfortable simply elevating someone from within the department to truly control roster decisions in Belichick's place. Between Director of Player Personnel Matt Groh, Director of Scouting Elliot Wolf, Director of Pro Scouting Steve Cargile, Director of College Scouting Cam Williams, and experienced front office executive Pat Stewart, there are plenty of talented minds in the Patriots' front office as currently constructed. So... Perry is telling us, yes, it's possible they go outside to hire a GM or president of football ops, but don't be surprised. Don't be shocked if they just elevate from within. He's also telling us again on the radio yesterday that he thinks it's likely Bill O'Brien and Gerard Mayo are back in 2024. Now, I'll say this because I always say it when we talk about who to hire and what position. Just get the right guy. Just get the right guy. Whoever you think is the right guy, if your process is handled the right way, then you will end up being correct. Just get the right guy. I would not, and I know many of you will probably disagree with this, I would not eliminate a name from consideration just because they worked for Bill Belichick. Because that would be guilt by association. We don't know how that individual thinks about the game. We don't know how much that individual has disagreed with Belichick during his time in Foxborough. We have no idea. So I would not eliminate a name just because, well, he's been here. I worked as a program director out in Sacramento. And there were some thoughts about some of the people in that building when I took over from other people in the building. Many thought, hey, you know, maybe you should get rid of this person. Maybe you should get rid of that person. I said, well, you know, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to take six months and evaluate every individual as I see them. And that's what you have to do if you're Robert Kraft. You can't lump in all of these names because they've worked with, worked for Bill Belichick. You have to judge each individual by who they are, strengths, weaknesses, 
and not just say, oh, well, he worked with Bill, so he is Bill. You, you just can't do that. Now, with that said, whoever is a candidate, whoever is under consideration and has worked with and for Bill Belichick, they have to be able to differentiate themselves from Belichick. And what I mean by that is if I'm Kraft and I'm sitting down with anybody that is still with this program and I'm thinking of bringing them back in 2024, I need to know that at least some of their philosophy, if not all of their philosophy or most of their philosophy is different than Belichick. I need to know that their principles are not the same thing as Belichick. If you're talking about GMs and president of football ops, I need to know that that person doesn't have the same grading system as Belichick, doesn't evaluate players the same exact way as Belichick. The candidate has to differentiate themselves from what we've seen from Belichick for the last 20 plus years. That has to be a prerequisite. You could work with or for Bill Belichick, but if you are married to him, if you are tied at the hip philosophically, when you talk about principles, when you talk about grading systems, then you're out. You're out. Simple as that. I also think that you cannot bring everyone back. Yes, you can bring some back because you can't just sit there and say, well, nobody within the framework of this organization is worth anything because Belichick had a bad three or four year period here. To me, that would be silly. Throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? You do have to break, though, the think tank. You do have to bring in some outside eyes. You need to bring in those outside eyes to challenge the system, to refresh some thoughts, reset some thoughts. So I don't think you bring everybody back. You have to get some new blood in the building. You have to. This can't be a full run it back minus Belichick. That'd be ridiculous. The new head coach has to have say on their staff. You have to empower that person, whether it's Mayo or it's Ben Johnson or it's Slowick or any of the other names we talked about last week. You have to empower that individual to run his coaching staff, to pick his coaching staff, which does make you wonder if Bill O'Brien is set to return in 2024, then Mayo returning as the head coach this time, being promoted, that would be a fait accompli. Unless, you know, because you have an outside coach that could be head coach that would keep Bill O'Brien and Gerard Mayo on the staff. I mean, maybe, but I don't think Mayo is going to be defensive coordinator under a new head coach because Mayo wants to be the head coach. We wouldn't have had all that, you know, all those stories come out several months ago before the season about Mayo and his future and turning down head coach interviews and all that jazz. Like he wants to be the head guy. So whoever the head coach is, you've got to empower him and he's got to pick his staff. I would also point out that, you know, some, some guys from Belichick's front office tree, because we always talk about the coaching tree, some from his front office tree have actually done well. You know, Thomas Dimitrov in Atlanta did a good job. Brought that team to a Super Bowl. And if it wasn't for the epic collapse, would have won a Super Bowl, right? The 28 to 3, right on the wall behind me. Jason Light in Tampa won a Super Bowl. So there have been people that have worked under Belichick in the front office that have gone on to different organizations and been successful. Unlike a lot of the head coaching stuff we've seen. 
And really, a, a big question is Robert Kraft. We could talk about head coach. We could talk about coordinators. We could talk about the front office. But what will Robert Kraft allow? What will the cash spending look like on free agents? How much spending will be allowed on the staff? You know, can you go out and hire the best guys? Now, we'll say that Kraft stepped up and paid Adrian Clem reportedly. So how much spending will be done on the staff? And how big of the staff are we talking about? Will Kraft allow a big staff in the building? Those are ownership questions. But just some thoughts about Kraft possibly running things back. All right, I'll have an epic Celtics rant about that loss last night in Charlotte in a minute. First, Cattles on Causeway. We'll have a live post-game podcast tomorrow night following the Bucks game. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Give us that thumbs up. Throw in a comment. How do you feel about Robert Kraft bringing back Bill O'Brien and Gerard Mayo in 2024 if that's what he does? How do you feel about that? Also, follow us on Spotify, Apple Pods, rate and review. Don't forget to subscribe to YouTube as well. All right, let's close this out on a rant because I was so frustrated by the Celtics last night and how that game ended and how the end of the fourth quarter went that I literally woke up this morning thinking about it and could not go back to bed. Yes, I need help, but that's where I was at this morning. Some disclaimers. The following few minutes does not mean I don't believe in this team. It doesn't mean that this team is not the best team in the NBA. I think this team right now is the best team in the NBA. They are 11-3. and three. Tatum is playing like an MVP for most of this season. All of those things are true. And all of those things are things that I feel. However, we look at this in a vacuum. Last night's loss was horrible. And you can give me all the excuses that you want. You can tell me Derek White, Al Horford, a back-to-back, last game of a road trip. That game last night was in hand for the Celtics to win. They had that game by the throat. 30,000 feet, just some of the bigger things that we saw last night that you just can't blame on, oh, back-to-backs and Horford and White. Charlotte had 60 paint points last night. The Celtics were a minus 14 in the paint. Celtics shot 18 of 28 from the free throw line, including those two late misses by Holiday and that late miss in overtime by Tatum. Those were killers. Here's another terrible number. From the three-point line, if you took out Peyton Pritchard and Jason Tatum's shooting numbers last night from three, the rest of the team shot four of 27 from three-point land. That is puke-inducing. Four of 27 from three. Yikes. I would have loved to see Jalen Brown step out, a step up without White and Horford out there, but Jalen didn't. 13, 4, and 3 is what he finished with. He had foul trouble all night. Brown was 5 of 17 from the floor. He was 0 of 5 from 3, including one of the worst three-point attempts in the final 40 seconds of regulation when he had a wide-ass open Kristaps Porzingis at the nail. He decides to jack up a three with like 11 seconds left on the shot clock and about 35, I think it was, on the game clock. Kristaps is, is flashing through the lane at the nail with his arms up, hands ready, and Brown jacks up a three and misses it. Not nearly good enough from Jalen Brown. Has to be better. Derek White's absence, it, it did hurt them. No doubt impacted them. Drew Holiday had seven turnovers, an outrageous number. 
The final two minutes, we'll get into that offense, but it wasn't good. Last two minutes in regulation and in overtime. Meanwhile, LaMelo Ball went bananas. 36-9-8. and eight. He shot 15 of 27 from the floor, partially because you had to play other guys against him defensively than White. If White's out there, you have to believe that ball isn't as effective. So yes, Derek White not being there hurt the team. But when all is said and done, the fact is the Celtics had a nine-point lead with two minutes and 20 seconds left in this game. A nine-point lead with just over two minutes to go against Charlotte. And they blew it. So for 45 minutes and 40 seconds, if my math is correct, for 45 minutes and 40 seconds, you were good enough without White and Horford to be up by nine. In the final 220, you allowed the Hornets to go on a nine-zip run. And it was just brutal to watch. Zero points in the final 220 of regulation. You had 10 points in the final seven minutes and 20 seconds of this game. 10 points in the final 720. And and Charlotte is the 30th ranked defense in the NBA going into last night's game. Last time I checked, there's 30 teams in the league. You're talking about playing against the worst defense in basketball. And you scored 10 points in the final seven minutes and 20 seconds. There's no excuse for that. I thought it started in the third quarter. Celtics again in the third quarter come out flat. Charlotte starts with a 14 to five run. JT, who was on a heater, looked like he was going to have a 60 burger last night. He came out passive. I appreciate him trying to get teammates involved early in the second half, but he was way too passive in that second half. And it all started at the beginning of that third quarter. Now let's look at the collapse. Several questions about that epic collapse by the season, the final 220, and then in overtime. Jalen Brown, of all people, was initiating offense. I don't know why you have Jalen Brown running your offense. I don't get it. Foul trouble all night. He was bad all night. You should not be running your offense through Brown in the final couple of minutes in a game, no matter who you're playing. It's silly. That's on Joe Missoula. Just unfreaking believable. In the final four minutes of this game, okay, in regulation, the final four minutes of regulation, field goal attempts, Tatum had two shots in the final four minutes of regulation. Two. Kristaps Porzingis had one shot in the final four minutes. You want to know how many Sam Hauser had? Hauser had two field goal attempts in the final four minutes, including the final shot in regulation. Sam Hauser had as many shots as Jason Tatum in the final four minutes of a game on the road that you're trying to close out. Inexcusable. Some on the players, some on Missoula. Inexcusable. Speaking of Missoula, Again, we had him standing there, Coach Joe, standing and watching a run and not calling a timeout. He had two timeouts. Missoula takes zero timeouts during a seven-zip Charlotte run. Just standing there and watching his team implode offensively. Oh, well, you know, they got to learn. They got to learn. Look, there's a point in time. There's a balance here. Yes, you try to get your team to learn things about themselves and try to execute better at the end of games. I understand that. You've got to give them some rope. But at a certain point, you've got to call a timeout. You just can't stand there and watch this team lose this game. And that's what Missoula did in regulation. He watched them lose a nine-point lead. He just stood there like I stood there watching that bleep show. Ridiculous. I don't think there was a single post-up in the final 
two and a half, three minutes of this game. You've got Porzingis, who's one of the most productive, efficient post-up players in the NBA. He's not touching the basketball. Tatum's not getting post-ups. Holiday's not getting post-ups. You miss your free throws. That's on the players. The no post-ups on Missoula and the coaching staff, you got to call for it at some point. The final defensive possession of regulation, you didn't have Porzingis out there on the floor. That's silly. It's an idiotic decision to not have Porzingis out there on the final possession. Proven by just on Sunday night against Memphis when Porzingis made the block to end the freaking game. Why is Porzingis watching from the sidelines on the final defensive possession? Tatum doesn't get the final shot of regulation. And that's coming out of a timeout. Out of a timeout, you get a contested Sam Hauser three when Hauser couldn't throw the ball in the ocean last night. And the shot was early from Hauser, by the way. That's the last shot of regulation you get coming out of a timeout. And, and some of this is a trend, folks. Again, they're the best team in the NBA. They're 11 and three. Tatum's been great. All of that is true. I'm not telling you the season's over. But the last three games, Toronto, Memphis, and Charlotte, they're 2-1. and one, But it's not the record. It's how they've been playing. And the guys have talked about it. Friday, after the Raptors win, it was, well, we didn't play great, but we'll learn from this. Sunday, Missoula comes out and says, we didn't deserve to win this game. And then last night, you have that awful final seven minutes and 20 seconds against the Charlotte Hornets. So there's some things to fix. And Missoula has to be better. He's been better this year than he was last year, but he has to be even better. Way too many screw-ups last night in the final moments of that game in regulation. And even in overtime, he kind of let Charlotte get cooking. Just can't happen. All right, I hope you enjoyed this podcast for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more Patriots thoughts, anything else that breaks. Until then, it's the Nick Cattle Show.